0: Today, we are talking to Bruno, the CTO at Uru, and you won't believe what they are doing with machine learning. We talk about the struggles of learning to manage people and to speak up when going from developer to CTO. We even get a question from the live stream. Leonard asked Bruno, with so many types of testing, when do you test and why? All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Okay, so I've got some questions about. Uh, you're really big into AI and machine learning. Yes. Right. Have yeah. you Have you seen the uh, Sophia that Saudi Arabia made her a citizen?
1: I saw that. I saw that. It's a uh, It's a little worrisome, right? Because how they can give more rights to uh, AI than to their to the human beings, like women, than uh, like I mean, it's a little worrisome. But I mean, it's interesting.
0: Yeah. So, were you involved in in programming her at all?
1: <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't at all. But uh, I, I followed the news, and uh, I think it's an interesting, interesting. There will be a lot of like interesting uh, uh, things that people need to figure out about AI and uh, how they how it fits on the world, right? Like because uh, we're getting closer and closer to having things that uh, basically they're not like hard-coded rules, right? It's a computer taking decisions and who is accountable for those decisions and things like that. So it's always interesting to see how, how, how those things are playing out in the kind of like legal field and things like that. So, yeah.
0: Right, and we get to live through all of this.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. That's the most exciting part.
0: Yeah, we got some responsibility though, right? Because otherwise our kids are going to hate us.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah. We, we need to be careful what we do.
0: Absolutely. So, like, because you're deep in the industry and you're in it and you're programming, um, what do you think is sort of the biggest misconception that the general public has about AI and machine learning?
1: Uh, The biggest misconception, that's a good one. Uh, I think that one thing that we we notice, and it's kind of funny, is that, uh, I mean, AI, it's cool and works really well, but I mean, it's still on the early days right we still don't have like uh like a robots walking around offices and doing things on their own it's still very early and i think there there are things that people see and they they get like their own impression and like i'll give an example so for instance let's say you have a picture of a dog and you show an ai system and the dog says and the computer says it's a cat uh for humans that's clearly a dog but maybe the computer just got that one wrong but it got like a million other pictures, right? And that can cause a kind of like a, a little bit of misconception because it's this kind of like AI AI is always a numbers game, right? Like if you have 99% accuracy, there's always going to be 1% that you're going to get it wrong. And sometimes for a human being, when they look at something that you got wrong, they're going to say, why, why didn't they get this? This, this is crap. When in, in reality, it's more like a, a numbers game. It, it's hard. It's a hard. It's hard. It's too early. But I think that. I think people are getting more used to it and used to the kind of like uh, shortcomings of AI, I would say.
0: It's like demoing any software. It's hard to explain to the people looking, oh, you're seeing the exception. This, like, this usually works. You're yeah. seeing the one in a million. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And when you're talking about AI, you're talking about like things that for us humans are very natural, like, like mm-hmm. speaking to someone or answering a question or looking at an image and saying what is in the image. And for us, like a a kid, like a five-year-old kid can answer those things. But for a computer, sometimes it gets confused and there's edge cases. There's even some like interesting uh, edge cases that you can see online. There is a researcher that basically took a picture of, uh, I think it's like a stuffed animal, like a turtle, uh, Uh turtle toy. And it made the the Google uh, TensorFlow to think it was a weapon just by Adjusting the color of the turtle in such a way and positioning in such a way that for the computer itself looks like a weapon. where if you're a human, you're looking at it, you clearly see that it's a turtle toy. So I mean, there's always uh, there's there's always shortcomings with any technology. So it's always important to communicate that. And I think uh, AI will evolve, and with that, people will get more used to this kind of like shortcomings. But it is interesting. It's definitely interesting.
0: Or maybe it's a weapon that shoots turtles. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> who knows. Um, have you seen those Boston Dynamics robots walking around and pushing them over and stuff?
1: The one that does the double flip, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's,
0: that scared me a little bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, yeah, it is a bit scary. I think that's uh, that's another thing that, like, I think it's one of the the main challenges for AI, right? Like, I think a lot of people are scared of it.
0: Well, yeah, and usually when people are scared, they try to they tend to ignore it. And that's yeah. the scarier part. <laughs> so how, yeah. did
1: you, how
0: did you find yourself in this niche of AI?
1: Sure. So uh, prior, so I went to Cornell to study uh, computer vision, artificial intelligence under Serge Belongie, who's an amazing professor there. And uh, prior to that, I was doing machine learning. I was like looking at the, the way the, the world was moving and I was like, computer vision is really evolving now that and I was like, look, there must be ways that we can evolve, like use this kind of like new technologies and apply that to the industry. So I thought, okay, let me do my master's at Cornell, really study under someone that is an expert in this, and then go to the industry and apply this knowledge to, uh, to certain uh, aspects of the technology that are still like underdeveloped in this sense of AI and stuff like that. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. So Uh, it was kind of like a curiosity, but like since ever, since I was an undergrad, I always study AI, not AI, but more on the machine learning side. And, uh, when I came here to the, I'm not from the U S and actually from Brazil. So when I came to the U S, uh, I started studying more deep, like deep learning and things like that, and then started my own company and here I am. So that's kind of like the short story.
0: Yeah. Did you do any programming before AI machine learning?
1: Yeah, sure. So actually, my first job I was a software engineer at J.P. Morgan back in Brazil. So uh, it was more distributed systems, it wasn't related to AI. Um, but uh, as I said, like I was, I was doing a lot of research on AI. Uh, I started writing for a, a magazine called Java Magazine, and I started writing about like uh, a cool open source framework for AI called Apache Mahout. Back at mm-hmm. the time, it was pretty big. It ran on top of the Hadoop system uh, file system. So it was pretty big at the time and I wrote uh, this magazine about it and they published my article and I started getting deep and deep into it. Then I joined another startup in Brazil. I work a little bit on the uh, machine learning there and I started getting deeper and deeper into that. And then I finally decided, okay, I think it's time to transition to uh, a more kind of like transition somewhere where I can have a, a deeper knowledge of like how this works, how how this works and like really under the hood. And that's why I started my master's at Cornell to really understand that, but it was good. I mean, it's good that I have both sides, right? I have both the software engineering side and also the research side, um, because it's always hard to, to to put those two together and make it work really well, so.
0: Oh, absolutely. I was talking with my sister about that. She's a teacher and she's been tuning in and listening to the, the show. And she asked me, she said, you know, Joel, what? Like I'm a teacher right now, I'm a science teacher very education oriented, great student. And she said, what, what would, what's the future for me? Like, what could I learn? Should I go learn Python? Like, should it be programming? I said, no, I was like, you're so good at your research and understanding of concepts. I was like, just, if you want to be involved in this world, in this you know, future, if, from my perspective, I would go learn everything you can about how humans interact and then go join some AI team as sort of like a subject matter expert in like anthropology or you know, psychology or something like that.
1: No, yeah, definitely. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I think AI will, AI will most benefit on is like actually drinking the knowledge from the experts. And like, because I mean, a, a computer can only learn what you, you feed it, right? So if you feed it bad data, it's gonna learn things all wrong. So you need to have this kind of like the more uh, accurate, the more valuable your data is, the better your machine learning and AI modules will be. So I think in having this kind of like experts in a certain, like, like I said, like in a certain domain that can help annotate data, create data that can then be fed to, the, to these models, that will definitely be the way that AI evolves even more as we go forward.
0: Yeah, I have a lot of ideas, right? I'm a normal person. Normal people have lots of ideas, uh, and and I, I'm sh- guarantee you do as well. You you can't be in this world not be constantly thinking about the future. And one of the things I was recently thinking about was developing like what a software would look like that would assist you in developing different sets of training datas for AIs to consume.
1: Yeah. That- I mean, that's, that sounds cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I know because every time that there's a new industry, there's a standardization of data, but those standards of data and those formats of how the AI will consume the data. I don't see those out there yet. You know, yeah,
1: it's kind of like a wild west, right?
0: It is. Everyone's kind of doing their own thing. All the heuristics have their own little way of doing things. It's really, it, it, everyone's just kind of, it's like going through this puberty almost, right? Um Yeah. I'm watching, I have a little girl, my first child, she's four months old and I'm watching her. She just became this week, she just became aware of her legs and her Mm -hmm. feet and Mm -hmm. watching her like figure out her feet. I'm like, how is she not a machine learning algorithm right now? (laughs) Like she's just trying things, trial, selection, error, variation. She's just trying things and then storing them. And then like, is that not what we are on the most basic level?
1: Yeah. And uh, I mean... Definitely it, and that, that also put us in perspective how amazing our brain is, right Because it's so hard to make a computer like learn things. and like you can see our brain, like you said, like your daughter, she's learning a vast array of things just like that, and it's amazing.
0: Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's interesting about how much processing power it actually takes for your brain to figure out how to start speaking because, you know, we get frustrated when we go train a model and it takes two or three hours to train a model. Right. Yeah. But she's had what four months times 20, you know, all those days times 24 hours. I mean, she's had, you know, a couple thousand hours of, uh, training already and she's just now learning to move her feet. Right. (laughs) So it kind of, and then, and then our, then you correlate that with the amount of processing power that the brain has and all that good stuff. And it's just like, we're not that far off. Yeah. you know? It's true.
1: It's true. Cool.
0: What are your thoughts on um, voice? What do you mean by voice? Do like the well, Alexa's, uh, the passive consumption of, of voice being able to say, Hey Alexa, order me uh coffee or Hey Alexa, you know, Amazon me a surfboard, right? Like what yeah. are your thoughts on how voice and AI and all that stuff? Cause they're collecting a lot of data right now yeah, they've, got the yeah. whole, they've got the whole world telling voice commands and learning a whole lot about people
1: yeah and i mean that's that's the thing that most people don't notice there's a lot of products out there they're basically you're paying for them and they're actually collecting data about you to train machine learning models uh i don't know if you ever got the, the google captcha that asks you like which of these images has uh, like a car or something like that oh yeah those are all like training machine learning and AI modules to say like which pictures of of cars and not. So, I mean, yeah, definitely. I think like, uh, and it's a cool business, right? You create something, you collect data and then you start having more and more things to train and get better than your competition. So the more, the bigger your market, the better your technology gets. It's a, it's a fun thing. I think voice definitely is something that will grow a lot. I think, uh, I think we 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 are at a point that like these things are actually uh, can be used by anyone, but I think there's still uh, a long road to get uh, to understand things such as like uh, is someone being ar- ironic? What is the sentiment? How to better respond to that in a sentimental level? I think those things will be will be something that we'll we'll see in the next few years because I think that that will create like more more like organic conversations with your Alexa or your Google home or whatever. And, uh, you actually feel like you're talking to a person, not to a machine. Although that's a bit, that's a bit scary, but uh, it's cool at the same time.
0: Uh, As long as they don't become self-aware, I think we're good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so how, uh, how did you, I see that. How do you say the name of your company? Uru.
1: Uru. Yeah.
0: You want to tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, Uru started from or me and my co-foundering Matt and we started from the belief that the the word the the word of like media, the word of like uh, media consumption is changing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we believe that it's moving towards something that is more visual, right? So mm-hmm. people are more and more looking at videos and things like that. And due to that we believe that advertisement needs to change and adapt to those kind of media. So it doesn't make sense anymore for you to just go into a, because before you had TV, you knew all the programs that were would come up. But now when you have a live stream, someone's live streaming, you you, you don't have previous, previous knowledge of like, what is that person talking about? What is happening on the screen? When I should put my ads against this content and how to better put those ads. So I think our idea was that this belief that like things need to change and things need to be informed by this visual content. And that's where we started. We actually started by thinking of like, look, how can we drink in this video content and solve this problem, which is like creating better advertisement experience for visual content that is coming. And that's where we, we saw a good fit for AI, machine learning, computer vision, to understand those the video content, AR content, live video content, any kind of visual content, and then automatically parse that, understand what it's talking about, finding the best brands to be against it, and then immerse those brands inside the visual feed in an organic way. So doing that whole pipeline and making that seamless for advertisers is where we where we want to get to. And we believe that that's going to solve a major pinpoint, which is this kind of like how do brands approach people in this new kind of media that's coming up. So,
0: yeah. Well, look, you absolutely brilliant. So I really, that got me psyched before the call when I was looking at what it actually does, because... You first of all, it shows your diversity and your ability to take and work with technology, the programmer side of you, but also the human EQ side of you to understand what brands actually want, right? How to merge the two. And so, you know, if I'm gonna bet on anyone, I'm betting on Bruno, right? Like that's <laughs> it's it's smart what you guys did, and I love it. Uh, at the same time, right after I thought that, I thought, oh oh, here we go. This is, uh, this is going to get acquired by like a Facebook or something. And I'll tell you why I, I run ads on Facebook, right. Mm -hmm. And Facebook videos, and I can select an audience to show a video to, and some traits. And they offer the option of me being on the quote unquote audience network where I run as, you know, as videos after before content, but there's nowhere in there. I can say that I want, uh, like a specific type to avoid a specific type. They're not I don't think they're doing anything like that. They, at least they don't offer options to the advertisers. And if they see your technology as something that could be plucked up and acquired and then put in and bring value to their customers, that's like all day. So so have you talked to Mark about this at all?
1: <laughs> no, no, we haven't talked to Mark yet. Uh, but uh, I think you're speaking to um, uh, a problem that actually a lot of advertisers see. And I can even tell you a, a, a bigger problem, which has been seen on YouTube the last couple of months, which is like, sometimes your ad is going to appear against videos that are unsafe. So it can be videos talking about violence, can be videos, uh, extremist videos and things like that. And that was a huge problem on YouTube. And the reason for that is basically because advertisers are basically advertising against audiences or very broad categories. But they don't know where their ads are showing up in the videos, and we believe that that's a problem, especially now that you're going to a place where, like, look, if I'm making like a a live stream right now, you have to understand what I'm talking about before you put an ad against it, and there's no way for you to do it besides understanding what the what the visual content is, so the visual and audio as well. But so I think that I think I think there's a huge space there, and that's that's our belief that like this is a huge problem that needs to be solved.
0: I I fully agree. And that is rare. So like nine times out of 10, I hear the startup ideas or the new technology white space ideas. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one, I was like, I in my mind, like clicked, like I just got it. Um, so how far are you guys through funding and stuff like that?
1: Sure. So we, we actually raised a pre seed round back in, uh, November last year Mm -hmm. that, uh, that was led by amazing investors here in New York city. um. November last year, I mean 2016, not 17, sorry. I'm still adjusting my calendar to the new, to 2018. <laughs> but yeah, so right now, actually, we just started uh, raising our, our actual seed round, so our proper seed round, and we're talking to a bunch of investors right now to try to close it by February.
0: Oh, excellent. What, what are you working on in that round?
1: So our pre-seed round was uh, 800000 and we're looking to raise uh, $1.5 million in this next round.
0: When's that going to close?
1: The next one? Uh, probably February.
0: That's interesting knowledge. So I, I dislike the, the mid-roll ads because mm-hmm. it jolts, jolts me out of my train of thought. Like I'm following, I'm following. And then boom, something like completely unrelated. Like I'll be watching. I'll give you an example. I, I like Tony Robbins. You like mm-hmm. Tony Robbins? kind of hard not to like the guy right yeah yeah. And, and sometimes when i take a shower in the morning getting ready eating breakfast i like to play you know an hour-long episode of him talking just to, you know get ready for the day it's just passively consuming the content and all of a sudden boom i get some 16 year old kid is like would you like to and better and improve your life and like i'm like oh come on dude like get out of my mid-roll like stop that uh <laughs> i will never run a mid-roll ad but I noticed that you guys were doing something with embedding objects into the video. So it's not an interruption and a pulling out. And I was like, Whoa, I know they do some product placements in movies, but that's really interesting. What are you guys doing there?
1: Yeah. So that's, uh, we totally agree uh, with the understanding that like, look, we, we understand that the way we advertise today doesn't resonate with a lot of people. Some people dislike them and, especially when you do this kind of mid-row without picking the right time, we know that a lot of people get annoyed with it. So our idea is actually, it's basically, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, three, it's a three parts, right? So the first thing you have to do is like understand what, what the video is about. The second part is actually you need to find the right match. So you have to match the video with the brand. And the third part, which is what you're speaking about, is the kind of like activation. So how do you act, once you find the right brand for the right video, how do you activate that content so it doesn't interrupt the experience of the viewers and create a uh, a good a good like a good uh, feeling for the brand? So the brand sits there and the viewer don't don't hate like the brand like like just like you said like when you see those ads you're like oh man what is this twenty year old talking to me? You don't want your brand to have that someone to have that feeling against your brand. So the activation is actually super important, and when we get to to mediums like AR, VR, live video, having an activation format that is both native, but at the same time, it's not disruptive and it's highly effective will be a game changer. And our idea there was basically, like you said, like look, product placement is one of those things that people notice it. it's been on, in, in here for a while, but the main thing was, it's not scalable right when you think about product placement you actually need to ship a product to someone they have to put in their set and then they have to shoot it with it so what we're working on is basically on this activation part basically creating a way for brands to insert products to insert their logos into the video itself as if it was product placement but through uh, digitally generated assets right so imagine how cool it would be you just create you send your your nike and you send your logo and now in a video, every time there's a billboard, we put a Nike uh, logo there on the billboard automatically, and that can be done uh, on on a video. It can be done per, per viewer, so a vi- a viewer might see on the billboard Nike, but another one might see Adidas and things like that. So we do uh, think. So we so do far, think. Yeah, go ahead.
0: I'm sorry. So like, you're just blowing my mind right now. So I'm retargeting a group and I'm Nike and I'm retargeting this group and that group's all seeing my Nike, but Under Armour is targeting a different group on that same billboard. They're seeing Also it's individualized.
1: Yeah. Wow. And and that's kind of like the stack that we believe that has to be built, right? So you have to say, okay, this video is about sports and it's passing through a billboard. Now we find this billboard and say, okay, this billboard is a good place to put an ad. Next, we're gonna find all the brands that are interested in sports and are interested in putting their ads against a billboard, and then the final step is basically taking their assets and inserting there. So that's one right. example that could happen, and then you can even up that one up that and say like, okay, now you can actually put a Coca-Cola can on top of the table, and if it's, oh, yeah. it's a Pepsi can or it's a beer brand, if it's a someone uh, over eighteen, uh, over twenty-one is watching it, so. You can go on and on. And we believe that you have to actually have the three aspects, which is the understanding of videos, matching with the right brands, and then finally the activation to get the, the advertisement really right for this next wave of of digital mediums that are coming. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, so what you do is – I'm just brainstorming here, right? So I'm making notes as you're talking, right, because you're getting me all excited here. So okay. I, imagine if, I imagine I'm a back-end Bruno's company – there's some sort of little search engine I type in, uh, you know, kitchen scene and um, comedy or kitchen scene and family movie or something like that. And all of a sudden, all the family kit movies, of family kitchen scenes pop up in sort of the search engine and I click on it and I somehow, you know, find the countertop object and inject the product onto the countertop and it shades it appropriately. So it looks fairly native and things like that. And maybe this is some sort of awareness campaign and then, And then I go over and I'm hooked up with like, let's say the Netflix or the Crackles or the Amazon videos. I'm hooked up with these video providers. And what's happening is there's some sort of concept of me consuming all of their content on their network. So I don't have to acquire the content licensing rights myself. My AI is consuming their content, indexing, logging, storing, all this great stuff. And then what happens is I have some sort of system that actually is, you know, regenerating the content with the product in it. And then it's all just this like beautiful seamless process. And you guys kind of sit in the middle and just make like crazy money.
1: Yeah. That's, that's definitely the goal where we want to get to. Of course it's a step-by-step so we don't have all those parts yet built out, but we're, we're walking towards that. That's exactly it.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's just kind of like where I see it. Like that, that's like the far progression of it is when you're sitting, sitting back and you have that technology built and you have those relationships there and you've, you solved all the problems. That's like the end result, right? The fun part is what you're going through right now. Like how do we survive? How do we get revenue in the meantime? How do we find people that believe what we believe that this is the future? And then how do we do all that while building the technology? So where it's actually usable and that the value is brought to the consumer.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And that has to be done step by step, right? Like, when you look at like big companies like let's say like SpaceX, like their final goal is basically like interplanetary colonization, right? But uh, I but I mean, for you to get there, there are steps you have to to be alive. You have to keep your company alive. You have to build step by step revenue and things like that so you can get there. So we also understand that there it, we cannot just aim for the. We have to keep the end goal in 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 line, and we have to walk towards it. But there. Are, milestones that we have to hit in the meanwhile. and I think, yeah, like you said, that's the fun part. It's basically figuring out those milestones, working towards them uh, once one is complete, walking towards the next one. and the cool thing is like when you look from uh, outside, when you look uh, on, from a bigger perspective, you can see that you're actually walking towards your goal, and you're getting closer and closer to this future, which for me sounds amazing.:
0: That's the journey. I love the journey.:
1: Yeah, the journey is amazing.
0: I was talking to my wife about this last night. She has recently started refinishing furniture for fun, right? (laughs) Because we have a baby. So she has to be at home with the baby. And so she's got, you know, six hours of downtime while the baby's napping here and there. And then so she started refinishing some furniture and she's really gotten into it. It's really, really good. And uh, I asked her last night at dinner, I said, hey, all right, imagine we're in the future and you can pay $150 and then boom, zap, instantly in your brain you're a woodworking expert so you can go do whatever you want you could go do anything you wanted with woodworking and you know all the techniques and I go would you do it 100 I go no health consequences nothing would you do it and she looked at me and she said no she goes I like the journey she goes I like learning I like figuring out the techniques I like the aha moments and I'm like oh I'm glad I married you
1: (laughs) yeah no yeah you're totally right the journey is the is the fun part
0: well that's also we kept talking I said you know what you're right because. I don't know, after 15 years of programming 60 hours a week, and knowing how to build anything I want to possibly build, right? And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> what next? Right. Because yeah. once you've mastered something, it's kind of just like, all right, what's the next, what's the next step? What's new? Um, so like Elon Musk's life, that's not boring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> He's always true. mastering something new.
1: Yeah, Elon Musk is uh Yeah, that's a cool thing. Also, like not talking about Elon Musk, but just being like an entrepreneur and having your company, it's it's a huge learning experience that you learn so much and so much outside of your domain. That's super cool.
0: Absolutely. So I have here on the notes that some topics you were interested in talking about were rewriting systems and poor code. Yeah, you've come across some some brownfield projects then.
1: uh no i think it's it's interesting i was i was actually reading one of your posts about the spaghetti code uh m v p right yeah, yeah, so i think it's interesting how like how people how can i put this so i think people still have to i i always had this belief in my mind which is like this look if you're if you're building a prototype it's one thing, but if you're building an actual product doesn't matter if it's an m v p it has to work well and it has to be something that you can at some point scale up. Even if you you have you have to rewrite some parts it has to be something that can be uh, can be like a, can be refactored easily, right? It cannot be like a spaghetti code or things like that. And I think that um, there's a lot of, you're right there's a lot of like people nowadays that just like oh, I'll just write like whatever just to and put that in production and it's a little worrisome.
0: Oh, it 100% because I'm I'm assuming you read the comments. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting how, and I mentioned, so that's piece of content that was like a rough sketch of content for the book. Right. Cause I put all the different articles out as different chapters to kind of get a rough sketch to see what people responded to and mm-hmm. to kind of improve it before I, I published the book. So after seeing all that feedback back and forth, I went and, you know, probably double the size of the chapter to address that about, you know, you you saw people wanting to use it to make an excuse. I'm going to make an, here's the excuse. So the reason why I'm not going to write good code is because it's a prototype or an MVP. And I look back at that and I say, no, no, no. There's only two reasons why you don't write good code. One, you, you don't know how to do it or two, you know how to write good code and you're choosing not to. And yeah. both of those suck. <laughs> like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the two reasons. So uh, what are you guys doing at, um, so you did some web programming or you did some other, you did some Java programming at the the investment company and now you're doing some machine learning stuff. In my world, I'm using a lot of continuous integration type technologies. And what what are you guys using over there? Like how do you deploy the the machine learning? Do you do any of that test or anything like that?
1: Yeah, of course. So we, we have our own hosted Jenkins. Um uh, oh. I don't know. I just like to host things because uh it gives me more control over any kind of like uh, custom stuff that we have to do. And we, we just deploy everything using Jenkins. We we have started uh we have started exploring using Kubernetes for our, our container orchestration. But uh yeah we're, we we also use a lot of serverless. So not everything is running on containers. So yeah, but most of our CI is running through Jenkins. And I think from day one, we always had like unit tests and integration tests running, at least from day one that our product was actually launched. So yeah, we always make sure that tests are running every time there's a commit test runs and things like that. I think that's very important.
0: I agree. That's how I have all of my products set up. And i all the monitoring and all the systems set up so that we have smooth production deployments, right? Yeah. Uh, so you have experience in something that I do not, and I'm curious to know how it affected you and what it was like. What was it like going through an incubator?
1: Uh, I mean, all the incubators we've been at have been extremely helpful and extremely valuable for us. The first reason for that is because all the incubators we went through didn't take any equity so it was always like free help. So that's always good. Uh, but I think besides that, there is uh, definitely things that an incubator can uh, kind of like fast forward you towards. So uh, incubators, normally they have a lot of resources that you as a startup either don't have the money or don't have the time to pursue. So for instance, uh, we we needed like the, a lot, all the incubators we've been at have provided us interest to uh, customers, introductions to, uh, venture capitalists, or even like workspace, which is something when you're early stage is something that you probably don't want to pay for. So an incubator has always helped on that. Uh, I think the only downside that I see from incubators, depending on the stage your startup is at is that it, sometimes it's a, it's a time committed commitment that you have to have to go to the events, follow the kind of like track they create and things like that. So, uh, but I, I guess, I mean, when you're early, those things also help you learn new things. So I think it depends. Each, each startup has their own kind of like style and culture. So I wouldn't say this is for everyone, but for us, it has helped us a lot.
0: Fantastic. How, how big is your team currently?
1: So right now we are uh, five. So we're four full-timers here in, in New York, and we have one working remotely for us from Extent. But uh, we're planning to grow that to probably eight or nine this year.
0: Where, where are you in New York?
1: We are at this uh, incubator, you could call like our accelerator, uh, called Grand Central Tech, which is right next to Grand Central.
0: Oh, well, appropriately named then, right? Yeah, it's, it's a good yeah. name. I'm going to be out there before March, so I'll definitely stop by and be like, what up? Yeah,
1: definitely. Come. We yeah, There's free coffee, so that's always good. <laughs> um do you guys use slack you guys fans of slack yeah we're fans of slack
0: dude how can you not be man i love that thing
1: everyone uses slack so
0: it's a, uh everyone uses slack yeah is that how you're primarily communicating
1: yeah primarily slack that's kind of like uh, or at least internally right so yeah
0: right that's what i use it for like jake and my producers and stuff we all have slack open on our computers so we can you know get messages quickly back and forth and yeah. share
1: yeah no it's yeah. pretty good
0: so what sort what sort of challenges are you facing with those with those five people as you're kind of growing and you have this c t o co founder role
1: yeah I mean for me I think one of one of the things that I think it's it's challenging but it's a lot of fun is like uh this kind of transition right because when we started me and my co founder basically I took charge of like engineering and he took charge of like the business aspects and uh Initially, since it was just me and him, basically what I did was just code. And then eventually we start hiring people and uh, all of our employees are engineers. So I started transitioning from this kind of like, I'm just coding to like being more a manager and uh, helping them. And it's kind of like, a, a I mean, I, I I have took like uh, project leads and things like that, but I've never been actually like a CTO or a manager before. So seeing how that transition happens and how you're kind of like, what do you what your priorities are totally changed, right? Like you, before, like when you're a software engineer, it's just like, okay, I have to finish this this amount of like issues or these JIRAs or close this amount of bugs. And now it's totally different. Now you have to make sure things are running smoothly. You have to make sure that everyone's happy. You have to motivate everyone. You have to uh, work on their, uh, think about their careers and how you can motivate them to be better and improve them towards where they want to get. You have to think about reaching the business goals, and it's a lot of thinking, a lot of like strategizing and uh, prioritizing things, and make sure, and at the same time, making sure you're you're building the right technology, you're uh, balancing technical debt with new features and things like that. So it's always it's been a fun ride. I think it's really really interesting.
0: Oh, absolutely! It's you know we got I got a message from this CTO named Arthur Blake, mm-hmm. and he was asking me he was asking me about this. He's, he's in the same spot you're in right now Mm -hmm. and he's transitioning and growing and he was wanting to, to know, you know, how do you motivate the programmers and kind of like get them to work well, you know, especially in distributed environments.
1: Yeah. I I think the the first thing and this applies, not just programmers, but anyone, you need to have a a passion, right? You need to have a, a reason why you're doing your startup and it cannot be just money, right? Like, uh, I think there is a saying that says like no one actually works for money, they actually work for like something they believe in. So they have to believe in you as a leader. They have to believe in the path you're doing for your startup. So I think that's like the foundation level. Of, like you need to explain to them like, look, this is the mission. This is why we're going to be a billion dollar company a few years from now, and you're going to be a major part of this. You're going to have a huge impact in this. So I think that's like like a base level they have to set with everyone. But I think the next level is basically like you listen to them, understand what they're what they want to do with their careers and try your best while they're working for you to also move them and improve them, uh their careers so they can get to that point. So uh, we have people in our team that really like to like publish papers or speak at conferences and we try our best to to when time enables it to make sure they do those kind of things and they're happy with it. And they feel part of the team, they feel they're important, and they feel that they contribute. Because in, in the end, like, if we don't have anyone working for us, we basically will just fail. So those, the people that work for you are the most important ones. So it's really important to motivate them in the right way.
0: Right. So it first starts with having the right people. Yes. Right? Because if, if you don't have the right people, then you're doomed from the get-go, you know? Yeah, and definitely. and then and then after you have the right people, if you have like the quote unquote perfect people, right, then yeah. it's about keeping building and keeping the momentum going.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned it. I don't know if you if you were referencing the article that I wrote, but I wrote one called uh, "People Don't Work for Money, They Work for Momentum."
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that that that's the one I read. Yeah, yeah,
0: because it's true. Like if if you come into work, like the money is great when you're getting the job right? It's like, oh, I can, I can live and I can afford my life. That's, that's exciting. You know, usually often when it's more too than what you were currently making, right? So, so you get excited about the money, but I'll tell you what, you go into anyone who's been working there through three or four paychecks and it's off their mind. It's just something that happens. And now it's about, you know, can you structure your teams in a way that where it's rewarding for them? Yeah. And can you keep that energy up? And, and do you have that emotional intelligence to be able to tell when the energy's low? And then do you have the skills to bring it back up?
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, especially software engineers, I mean, the market is so heat up that if someone wants to leave and get another job, they just can and probably get paid more. So I think salary is becoming less and less important and things such as like, like you said, like making sure that you get people that believe in the mission that you're trying to solve and are excited about it. And making sure they're working, things that they can see the impact is definitely super important.
0: Absolutely. And then we had a we had a question from uh, Lenart, uh, and he wants to know about how do you choose when and where to test, like throughout the different product cycle. Do you test right from the beginning everything, or do you kind of deploy? Uh, your code and then make sure it's working and then put tests in place to monitor that it's working? Like when do you, I know it's a hard question to answer, but do mm-hmm. you have just some, just some general nuggets of information for, for Lenard about when you go to test? Like what triggers your mind?
1: Sure. So I think there is, the first thing is there are different kinds of tests, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm from the belief that any development needs to have unit tests and they have to be done as soon as you're developing your code. So uh, later on, if you want to refactor it, if you want to rewrite your code, you have those unit tests to guide you. And they also make it easier for new developers to come and understand what the code is doing. So I think unit tests should happen from the get-go. So as soon as you start developing, make sure you have unit tests for the things that make sense. Uh, and also, like uh, as you progress, you're going to see that those unit tests are going to become more and more important uh now when you're talking about like more on the kind of like integration testing and actually uh having a test case that simulates a user using your product and things like that i think that's uh that's that's a, a definitely a, a tricky a tricky subject and the reason that i say it's a little tricky is because um we went to a phase where we we tried some products and we weren't quite sure if those products would have a market for it so there were more like prototypes than product. So uh, at that point in time, since no one was using that in production, there was no one using besides us when we were demoing it to customers, didn't make sense quite to spend a lot of time working on tests just because we knew that those things could, like, you know, we could be totally different or they could just be gone. So I think like if your system is at a point where you feel comfortable into like saying like, okay, this is kind of like I think people are going to start testing this. People are going to start using this. Definitely write test code for the most important aspects of it. But now if you're in the other spectrum where you're still trying things and you don't know if this is the, the final thing, maybe you should just make sure things are working and uh, and then uh, write minimal test code just to make sure that when you deploy things, uh, you make sure that uh, nothing's broken. But I wouldn't worry that much about like full length of spectrum of test codes, but that's just my opinion.
0: Oh, no, I fully agree with you. I love your opinion. So the way I look at it is I think exactly the way you, I believe unit tests should be written as you write code. It should like, you shouldn't separate writing code and writing unit tests, yeah. right? It, it should be something that happens. And, and that's simply because how else are you testing the output? Like what else, what are you, what else are you doing? Like, <laughs> you hitting save and going into the console and like reloading it every time. Like, you know, I've automated test suite set up and then I write the unit test and I see the output and I pass it and I pass it. And then every once in a while I'll do a little refactoring. If I, think I might want to try something new, you know, (laughs) does it still work if I do this? No. Okay. I don't want to figure that out. I don't want to figure out why it doesn't work. I just, here's how it works. Let's move on to the next task. They also force you to think about it logically when you start writing the actual text for the test, when you're describing the test. And it really opens up like the gaps of where you could have logic issues, right? And you don't necessarily have to handle all the edge cases, but at least you can be aware of them and kind of, you know, make a note of it and come back to it later. Um, yeah. It's not too critical. And then again, right when you rolled into integration test, yeah, if you start binding it to the interface elements too soon, things are likely to change or the expected results, you may just have, you know, at the beginning of any product, you're going to have a lot of changes. Yeah. You're going to be talking to the customers. You're going to be making sure you're building the product that brings value to them. And if you, even if you're not binding to the interface, even if you're just binding to the result. You know, that result may become unnecessary and removed and then you're cleaning up tests and it can just be a little messy. So the way I like to do it is I write the unit test as I write code. Integration test when an when a section of the application feels like it's you know at a good mature point, mm-hmm. I'll put some basic tests in there to make sure I get some, and they won't be super detailed. I won't test a lot of different things. I'll just throw some very light tests in there for the most mission critical parts just so I get the little ping before... That you know, in Circle CI or Jenkins or whatever,
1: yeah, exactly. And I think that's 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 where we started as well. Was just like our integration tests were more of a way for us to make sure our new commits weren't breaking everything rather than testing the full application. And then as we move towards something more stable, we start writing the test to make sure every single scenario is covered and everything's working. So, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, no, I think you answered uh, Lynn and author author's question pretty well um the other thing speaking up has that have you had look we've all had trouble like i was super quiet and look and like now i host a show <laughs> right so i kind of learned that skill of being quiet did did you start out quiet or were you always fairly outgoing
1: i i always been quiet i still think of myself as a quiet person right now so
0: oh well, you sound awesome okay thank you <laughs> but uh
1: yeah, I, I, I'm a very shy person. I was a very shy person. I still think I am, but uh, I'm definitely sure that I have improved from that. And I think that's part of being uh, a CTO and being like a, in a manager position. You have to also develop your interpersonal skills and be able to communicate clearly to people. So yeah, yeah. Well,
0: it's definitely counterintuitive because in life we're kind. It's the unspoken concept that if you're loud, you're dumb. Yeah. Right. Like you associate loud and dumb and quiet and smart. It's like universally accepted across language barriers and everything, all cultures. And so it's real interesting to find some, it makes you not want to be loud because you don't want to be associated with that. So that's part one. And part two, it's very difficult for me to differentiate the people. There there are, there are are people who are loud, who are smart, but they're just the exception, not the rule. And so it's it's hard for me to sift through and find those people to follow. Like I like Simon Sinek. He is loud and smart. Have you come across him?
1: I haven't come across him.
0: Okay. So he talks about, he's not technology per se. He mm-hmm. talks, uh, he's got this the second or third most watch Ted talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you like Ted talks?
1: Yeah, of course.
0: Okay. So he's got this one, second or third most popular Ted talk of all time. It's called, um, start with why. Mm-hmm. And I promise you, Bruno, if you watch that, you and your co-founder will have so much to talk about about how you present your brand it'll blow your mind and it's like thirty minutes of your time and it changed my life
1: I'll definitely watch it
0: yeah, and I mean I'm not surprised that it became that like such a popular talk so how did you how did you meet Bill Bill's your co-founder in this yes. project? How did yes. you meet him?
1: We met at Cornell actually uh, we we're doing the same uh, computer science masters, mm-hmm. and uh, we just met, and uh, we actually start working on some different projects. We had similar interests. And I think we both share the same like passion for working on things and like being really uh, dedicated to things and making sure things were really good when delivered. And I think we just like that that was kind of like, okay, we kinda like, okay, this person is really dedicated. It puts a lot of effort on these things. And then we start working on this project, which eventually turned out to be our startup which started as a kind of like a research more research project in one of the classes at Cornell and grew and grew and grew to a point where we actually spun out as a company. So it was a fun, fun period of our lives. So
0: you guys were both attracted to each other because you both have a passion for your craft. You like care, you're like a skilled craftsman at what you do and that was like rare.
1: Yeah. And I think also like the kind of like, uh, I think work ethics was something that we really liked about each other. I know it's, uh, it's a kind of like a term that it's uh, wrongly used a lot of times, but just like, I mean, everyone has been through college or school and you always, sometimes you end up with like teammates that don't do a lot of work or don't care that much about. What Most delivered. of the time. <laughs> Most of, yeah. And uh, I think when every every project that me and Bill work together, we both just like, went the extra mile and always tried to deliver something that was like, even if we had to spend like the whole night into the university and just working on it, we wouldn't care. We would try to do our best. And I think that's, that's how like startup is, right? Like you, you're, you're going to spend a lot of nights working, coding, answering emails and doing a lot of stuff. You're not going to have a personal life, a lot of weekends and things like that. And you just have to, do because you know you want to deliver the best you can so I think that's that was kind of like the thing that matched us together to do this company
0: yeah and you know I think about this a lot right because people they say oh he's working all the time he's a work addict he's a workaholic he's always doing that 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 and and then you turn around and you ask them if they love their job and it's no <laughs> it's like they don't love what they're doing, so they they almost feel bad for me or think it negatively, and I'm like, look, you call it work because it it generates money or something, but that's not why I'm doing it. Like, I'm doing it because this is what I love to do. I'm very very satisfied. My work-life balance is working a lot, which actually makes my family moments more rare, which actually makes them more enjoyable for me. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't like to just hang around, yeah. you know, I'm not the monkey that hangs on the tree and eats the banana. I'm the monkey that runs through the forest at life speed, like swinging from branches and is like, ooh, ooh ah, ah, you know, like I want, I want to go and see what's on the other side of the forest. And then when I get out there and I see a mountain, I want to go and see what's on the other side of that mountain, yeah. you know, and yeah, then eventually yeah. like, like Musk, I want to go jump in a rocket ship and see what's on that other planet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's how way do it.
0: Yeah. So the fact that you guys were able to identify, uh, cause you know, the business and, and even though you both have a passion for your, your craft, there's nothing, nothing that will convince me in the world that there's not things that you have to work through as a relationship because a co-founder is just that it's a relationship and there's ups and there's downs and there's highs and there there's lows. So that that's also a skill that is learned when you actually work with a co-founder. Is this your first co-founder?
1: This is my first co-founder. Yes
0: yeah so you're figuring this out right now
1: yeah no it's uh it's definitely it's interesting i think we we definitely had our lows and our highs and i think we learn to respect each other's opinion and learn like you basically start to learn how to communicate to each other so there's even though there's conflict it's not a emotional conflict right you want to keep things the less emotional as possible and be rational and think through things in a rational sense and figure out the best solution. So I think, mean, yeah, definitely, for sure. It's something that we're constantly learning, but I think we, we evolved a lot from where we started.
0: Oh, of course. Cause it's, it's all about that balance.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: Fantastic. All right. So I'm going to wrap it up with this question. Okay. Yeah. Elon Musk calls you up. He's mm-hmm. like Bruno. And you're like, Elon, what's up? Um, you fly out to him, see him. Hang out. He's got a time machine waiting for you. He says, this time machine goes 10 years into your past and you get to talk to yourself for a minute and give yourself, your past self, some advice. No consequences. Mm -hmm. What would you tell your past self?
1: Huh, let me think. Uh, Start a company earlier, I guess.
0: (laughs) Start this company earlier?
1: Not exactly this company, but any company. I guess like when I was younger, I just like had many good ideas for companies and I just, I always like thought like, Oh, I don't have the skills to start this. I don't have the skills to start this. And uh, I think one thing that you learn is that if you just wait to have the right skills to start anything, you're probably not going to do a lot of stuff in your life because uh, some things you just learn doing and uh, that that kind of like pressure pushes you towards being a better person. So I'll just say like, look, just try it, and if you fail it's okay you're gonna learn much more uh, but yeah, that would be my advice
0: dude I couldn't give better advice than that. What a fantastic way to wrap that up that is, I a hundred percent agree you got you just gotta do because that ability to go and try and fail and learn and and that is learning if you're just reading and hypothesizing and thinking and you're not doing you're you're literally going nowhere,
1: yeah, exactly, and I think like uh uh there is a lot of like uh there's a lot of people that think like that. Oh, I, I don't have the right skills, and I mean, you never know. You never know. Like maybe it's someone. The difference between a person that thinks they don't have the right skill and the person that is doing their job they wanted to do is just that the other person has a higher confidence of themselves. So I think you have to try.
0: Well, it's like it's like walking. Okay, yeah. you know, you you know you're gonna fall. Like you're sitting, but you want the ability to walk. So what do you do? You walk. stand up. You walk, you fall, you fall, and then eventually you don't. But as long as you sit there laying down and think, "I want to stand. I need to learn how to stand. I'm going to read how to stand. I'm going to plan. I'm going to draw maps and schematics on how to stand." You're never, you're never gonna, you're never gonna walk.
1: Yeah, it's true.
0: You gotta fall. Awesome. This has been like one of my favorite conversations ever, Bruno. I, I'm actually like, I want to when I'm out in New York City later this year, um, I'm going to stop by and give you a high five or something.
1: Cool. Definitely. Let's meet up.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.